Hello and welcome to the Simungos podcast. This is episode 68 and today's topic is traumatic brain injury and our special guest is Erica Sigmund. Now we're going to play her lecture shortly and you can watch that lecture in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St Mungos and there's a link to that in the show notes. But we got Erica on a call to give her top five tips for emergency clinicians. So we'll do that now. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, so I am delighted um, to get on a call with Erica Sigmund. Erica is sitting in a mechanics shop in Georgia. (laughs) She's dedicated. She refused to not join me uh, for this call. So she's waiting for her truck to be uh, fixed. So I'm delighted. I'm really glad you could join us, Erica. Erica, just for our listeners, before we begin, because we're going to play your lecture soon from the pocketbook of emergency medicine, and you're going to, you're, you've joined us to give us your top five pearls of wisdom. But before we do that, Erica, do you mind just giving our listeners a little background to you, uh, your professional background and where you are in the world? Sure, I'd love to. And thank you so much for having me on the on the podcast. I really appreciate it. So I am from Atlanta, Georgia, and that's where I'm currently practicing. I originally trained as a neurologist, and then I decided to do some more training in critical care. And so I'm actually a neurointensivist, and I practice at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, as well as Grady Memorial Hospital, Um, both really exciting teaching hospitals, very diverse group of population uh, of patients, and it's just absolutely wonderful. Fantastic, Eric. Well, look, thank you very much. Well, look, are you happy just to jump right in? We'll just, uh, we'll get your top five pearls of wisdom. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I'm really excited to do this because when I think about what a pearl is, I think about it being an imperfection or an irritant in maybe an oyster or mollusk or whatever it may be. And for me, these pearls are things that I learned through the years of my training and my practice that were irritants or mistakes that I made and I learned from and they became this pearl that I really try to stick to in my practice and I hope it's helpful for everybody. So number one, never, never, never miss a basilar thrombosis. It's actually quite easy to miss this diagnosis and it's really devastating if you do. And what I mean by that is these patients can be very complicated to exam. They can often mimic intoxication. Maybe they're coming in with DKA and you're attributing their mental status to DKA. Maybe they're coming in with a positive alcohol level on their labs and you attribute their exam to being intoxicated. So it's actually really easy to miss And these misdiagnoses, these patients that don't get thrombectomy or treatment, there's over 80% mortality. So how do you not miss it? You have to have a very high index of suspicion, meaning, you know, even a decreased level of consciousness, maybe some, not, not even plegia as everybody thinks, but just some weakness some combination of weakness, cranial nerve deficits, and a decreased level of consciousness, you've got to get that CT angiogram looking for a clot in the basilar artery. The other tricky thing about this diagnosis is, and I've been fooled by this too many times, somebody comes in, the family or EMS is giving you the history of, they had seizures, they were found convulsing. 
And so automatically you think, okay, this is seizure. Let's treat the seizure. Maybe you get a CAT scan, but not imaging of the blood vessels. Then several days later, the patient's not improving. You get an MRI or a CT with vessels at that time. And you see, oh no, I've missed a basal or thrombosis. They've completely infarcted their brainstem. And that's terrible. These basal or thrombosis cases, I wish more people knew, they they can come in with convulsions. The mechanism of this, we don't exactly know. Maybe it's ischemia of those motor fibers, the corticospinal tract. But even in some reports, 70% of these patients can come in convulsing. So it mimics seizure. So bottom line, low, low threshold to get a CT angiogram of the head and neck looking for basal or thrombosis in somebody with a decreased level of consciousness, maybe plus or minus cranial nerve deficits and motor deficits. Just get the scan. The next pearl, do not underdose generalized convulsive status epilepticus. In my mind, I think about Status epilepticus, it's it's still one of these fantastical names, right? And it reminds me of an evil villain, like status epilepticus. And how do we treat that? We have to give an appropriate dose of benzodiazepines. So what I see very often in my practice and have been guilty of it in the past is underdosing lorazepam. Lorazepam is really our first line in the United States and what we use. And the studies would support this observation in that over 50% of patients with convulsive status epilepticus get underdosed. And why is that? Well, the dosing for status epilepticus is 0.1 mg per kg of lorazepam IV. If you think about for a 70 kilo person, that's seven milligrams. And so you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm going to give 70 milligrams of lorazepam to these patients. Surely that's going to lead to decline in mental status, loss of an airway, and intubation. And so we often hold back. We say, I'm only going to give two milligrams, or I'm going to give four milligrams. And the studies support that improper dosing, too low of a dose, or not dosing benzos at all, are what's more associated with respiratory decline and intubation. So fear not, give the correct dose of lorazepam, and treat the status epilepticus villain. The other point with status epilepticus is always we want to find out what's causing the status epilepticus. If you can't identify a cause and it's not quickly reversible, I'm talking hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, hyponatremia, you can't quickly reverse it, then that patient, in addition to the benzodiazepine, is also going to need a non-benzodiazepine agent. And just go ahead and order that as you're ordering the Ativan to stop the status. The memory trick that I use for which agents to use and the dosing, um, we, you know, there was a trial, ESET trial, that came out within the last several years, but the medications we use are levetiracetam or Keppra, valproic acid or phosphenatoin in generalized convulsive status epilepticus. 
And I think of the rule of 60, 40, 20. So 60 milligrams per kilogram of levetiracetam up to 4.5 grams, 40 milligrams per kilogram of valproic acid up to 3,000 milligrams, and then 20 mg per kilogram of phosphonatoin up to 1,500 milligrams, depending on your institution. So 60, 40, 20 rule in terms of the dosing for that. But very important to do that because giving that non-benzodiazepine really reduces the risk of developing refractory status epilepticus. The third pearl, and also has to do with seizure patients, is if you can, try not to intubate these patients too early. And what I mean by that, you have to pick the right patient, right? So these patients that have generalized convulsive status epilepticus, you've given them this slug of lorazepam to stop their status, and it stops. And they look pretty terrible from a mental status perspective really quickly after that, and maybe up to an hour or so. And what I commonly see is these patients get intubated despite their seizure stopping because Perhaps somebody was worried about them being really sleepy, but sometimes it's appropriate to let them sleep it off because what we see often in these patients, they get intubated, they immediately come to the ICU, and they're they're wild, and we extubate them pretty immediately, and they look they look great. So if at all possible, don't rush to intubate these patients. Now, I'm not referring to a patient that has refractory seizures that you really need to control with a, a drip. I'm talking about the patient who comes in that responds and their seizures stop with that initial slug of benzodiazepine. My fourth pearl relates to intracranial hemorrhage and the treatment of that. So when I say intracranial hemorrhage, I'm referring to spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage in, in the parenchyma, I'm not referring to subarachnoid hemorrhage, subdural hemorrhage, or epidural hematoma. And what we've learned over the years is that time really is brain for this process too. We always hear time is brain for acute ischemic stroke. Time is brain for intracranial hemorrhage as well. And the two very important things you can do to improve outcomes is acutely lower the blood pressure and I'll talk more about that, and reverse any anticoagulation quickly. So first, for blood pressure control, if you have a patient coming in with systolic over 150 up to 220, you're going to want to target a systolic 130 to 150, and you're going to do that relatively quickly. The reason for this is bleeds will expand often in the first three to six hours, so you really want that tight control very early on. For that, I prefer titratable drips such as nicardipine, clavetipine, labetalol. I try to get in an arterial line. That allows me for a smooth control. And doing the titratable drips is better than the intermittent IV medications because of the variability of the blood pressure that comes with IV medications. 
that variability has been associated with worse outcomes. And remember, avoid any drips that start with the word nitro. Nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, these can dilate the cerebral vasculature and increase intracranial pressure, so we avoid those. The other point is if the bleed is anticoagulation related, you've really got to focus on getting that reversal agent in quickly. Have your pharmacist on speed dial. That's the tool I use. Hey, we've got a bleed. It's related to Coumadin or Apixaban or whatever the agent may be. Let's get a reversal agent up to bedside ASAP. A lot of people think that you have to wait for an INR to reverse Coumadin, and you really don't need to wait. You can, before the INR is even back, go ahead and give a standardized dose of four-factor PCC or Kcentra right away, so 1,500 units. Then when the INR comes back that you've sent before dosing, you can adjust your dosing to make up, say, the INR is over four, you can give additional four-factor PCC to reverse the Coumadin in addition to what you've already given. So the other point with this is many places don't have the reversal agents for uh, dabigatran or apixaban um, or uh, rivaroxaban. And so what we are doing is, and I think the literature would support this, is just reversing using four-factor PCC in these cases, again, having that pharmacist on speed dial, getting the drug to bedside, and rather than spending a lot more money to use these very targeted agents that really in the literature have not shown to be more efficacious for reversal and do not have any benefit from a side effect profile, I think four-factor PCC is totally reasonable for reversal. And then my final pearl, I feel like no critical care conversation and no ED conversation about neurocritical care would be the same or it just wouldn't be enough to not get in a word about subarachnoid hemorrhage. It's a disease process very near and dear to my heart. Both hospitals I work at are high volume. Uh, we treat a ton of subarachnoid hemorrhage. These patients can look very very sick, but they can do very, very well with appropriate triage and getting them to the right place. So my pearl here is triage these patients quickly and rapidly. We know that treating these patients in high volume centers for subarachnoid hemorrhage improves their outcomes. Additionally, securing any possible aneurysm that led to the subarachnoid hemorrhage early on and as early as possible is also associated with decreased mortality. We know that increased time to treatment of these aneurysms are associated with increased rates of re-rupture and re-rupture is associated with 70% mortality. Okay, so so important to, as soon as that subarachnoid hemorrhage is discovered on C CT head, start immediately the triage steps. If you have neurosurgery at your center and you treat these frequently, clearly, you know, get them involved ASAP, get them to get these patients to an ICU. If you are at a center that doesn't manage subarachnoid hemorrhage, 
reach out to a, a center that does ASAP, preferably fly them if at all possible, get them to that center as quick as possible. The other thing I frequently see people doing related to subarachnoid hemorrhage is they'll, the transport will get delayed while somebody gets a CT angiogram. You know, they've gotten a CT head that shows subarachnoid hemorrhage and, and the patient's back in the room and oh, they send them back to get a CT angiogram. This leads to transport delays. So you really don't have to have that CT angiogram before you send them, in my opinion. That CT angiogram can be obtained when they get to the treating center. The most important thing is getting them to a place that can treat them as early as possible. And then in the meantime, focus on your other resuscitative strategies. Keep that systolic blood pressure less than 160, preferably with a, a drip for smooth control, an arterial line. If there's hydrocephalus or edema on the CT scan, give mannitol, give hypertonics. You know, I, I think easy things to give in the emergency department, mannitol uh, in a three end or rather 3% uh, bolus to bring, you know, treat that edema. And then give some, what we do is a gram of levetiracetam to prevent any seizures. But key, 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 get them to a place that uh, they can be treated quickly so they do not re-rupture. And then if there's any change in their clinical status while they're with you, Go ahead and repeat that CT head. Maybe they've had ongoing bleeding um, and the accepting facility will definitely need to know about that. Thank you so much for those wonderful pearls. Let's just jump into your talk. Now, you give a wonderful talk on traumatic brain injury, so let's just get into that. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Dr. Erica Sigmund. I'm a neurointensivist at Emory University Hospital in Grady Memorial Hospital, which is a level one trauma center in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I'll be talking about traumatic brain injury with a focus on the acute management in adult patients. I have no financial disclosures. So we'll review the basics of TBI and then take a look at clinical practice intermixed with available evidence, and then finally discuss practice patterns in resource-limited settings. So traumatic brain injury is a change in brain function or other brain pathology caused by some external force, such as direct impact, indirect energy, injury, acceleration, deceleration forces, and could happen through mechanisms including road traffic incidents, falls, violence, or penetrating injuries. It is important to remember that although we will discuss TBI, we know that a third of TBI patients will have other areas of trauma. And although we're discussing it here in a vacuum, I know you guys are going to be especially attuned and know that these patients have other areas of their body that need to be assessed and maybe trauma, uh, may need trauma management as well. So TBI is a major source of health loss and disability worldwide. Globally, the annual incidence of TBI is estimated to be around 27 uh, to 69 million new cases uh, each year. To provide some perspective, I've graphed out here the annual incidence of TBI cases relative to other diseases. So TBI affects more people than HIV, TB, stroke, and CNS infections combined. How do we characterize it? Well, TBI can be characterized by severity, which is depicted here on the right, 
Okay, when we're to, when we're characterizing it this way by the Glasgow Coma Scale, we're using the neurologic exam to assess for eye-opening, verbal response, and motor response. Mild TBI is GCS 13 to 15, moderates 9 to 12, and severe is 3 to 8. TBI can also be characterized by the type of injuries present on imaging. Focal injuries include subdural hematomas, intraparenchymal hemorrhage, epidural hematomas, contusions, and diffuse injuries include multi-compartmental hemorrhage, where you may have multiple focal injuries in many compartments of the brain. Uh, you can have uh, diffuse axonal injury and traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage. Characterizing TBI is so important because it really allows the provider to triage and then critically think about the next management steps. So here are some examples of focal uh, and diffuse injuries. Most of these are from my collection. I've denoted and sor um, provided sources if an imaging came from another source. Um, so the first image that you'll see is an example of a bif bifrontal contusions. And these are common in coup, counter coup injuries. They're primarily affecting the frontal lobes and the temporal lobes. So here you see uh, really bifrontal uh, contusions. You see these areas of hypodensity here in the, the frontal lobes, and then you see these areas of hyperdensities, which represent hemorrhages. Um, contusions are problematic. They can blossom um, in the first 24 to 48 hours and may even cause significant mass effect and lead to secondary injury. Um, the next picture here is an example of intraparenchymal hematoma um, here uh, in the frontal lobes, um, mostly in the right frontal lobe. Uh, these are also problematic because they can expand in the first 24 to 48 hours and cause significant mass effect. Um, next is an epidural hematoma, and it's this nice lens-shaped hyperdensity here. Uh, these are, you know, of course, formed by injury to arterial structures, uh, classically the middle meningeal artery, but other arteries can be involved. And they're so pro problematic because when the artery is injured, you have that, you know, sort of high pressure vascular structure that's just going to, uh, this lesion is going to be at high risk for expanding and causing problems. Now compare that to a subdural hematoma or subdural hemorrhage, and you have a more crescent-shaped hemorrhage here um, that can, you know, extend um, across suture lines. Um, these can also expand, of course. Uh, also, uh, you see a hyperdensity here. That's an EVD that's been placed in this patient. Uh, finally, we see a traumatic subarachnoid, uh, really multi multifocal convexal traumatic subarachnoid here. There's a little the subarachnoid component here, but these there are these hyperdensities in the subarachnoid space. Um, it, classically, with these tra traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhages, the pattern is more cortically based, multifocal. Um, pattern of, of bleeding and compare that to an aneurysmal pattern, subarachnoid hemorrhage, where uh, you mainly have, you know, you, you'll get this diffuse pattern of um, subarachnoid hemorrhage in the basal cisterns and sylvian fissures and not this convexal um, multifocal sort of pattern. I have not included a, a, an image of diffuse axonal injury, and that's mainly because in your initial CT head, it's going to appear normal. MRI is really the best imaging modality to characterize diffuse axonal injury. 
So understanding the pathophysiology of TBI provides a conceptual framework of why we focus on the treatment strategies that we do and that I'm going to get into. So in TBI, you really have two types of injury. You have your primary injury, that's neuronal damage due to the trauma itself, and then the secondary injury, which is neuronal damage from the sequelae of edema, high intracranial pressures, loss of cerebral autoregulation, hypoxemia, hypercapnia, seizures, fevers, and even vasospasm. And this is really where we come in as providers and especially emergency providers. Um, this is where we can make a difference and prevent secondary injury. So let's discuss clinical practice and the available evidence here. Much of this management comes from the 2016 Brain Trauma Foundation guidelines for management of TBI and with a specific focus on you know, moderate and severe TBI patients. So this is really an overview or summary slide of the really the big picture here, okay? So after you've done your initial survey of your trauma patient and you've identified a TBI patient, then it's really important to come back to that patient and think of them really from a neurologic standpoint. You know, really make sure you've got your neurologic exam, you've done your GCS to characterize the severity of their TBI. And when stable, get imaging. That imaging is going to be so important because you're going to be able to uh, set off a cascade of events that allows you to intervene from a surgical perspective and really triage them appropriately. Then what you've also got to be doing all really at the same time are thinking about ways to prevent that secondary injury that we talked about. And the way I, my framework for this is just go back to the ABCs and I'll go more in depth about how to do that, but you're essentially wanting to optimize your oxygen uh, ventilation targets, your blood pressure, your cerebral perfusion pressure, and your intracranial pressures um, as they arise. And then while this is all going on, of course, you're thinking about, is this really the best location for this patient? And remember, uh, for TBI patients, High volume center, uh, high volume TBI centers with protocol driven treatment have really been shown to improve the outcomes in these TBI patients. So we've got to think about that too. So you've done your initial assessment, you've gotten this exam, you, you've characterized the TBI based on severity. The patient's stable and you want to send them for uh, imaging. So in general, when do you get a CT head? You know, essentially the rule of thumb is someone who's had a traumatic brain injury and has a GCS of less than 15. There are some caveats that I'll, I'll tell you about on the next slide, um, but that's the basic, you know, set of rules. Um, but, you know, you're getting that CT head and are you, do you also want to get a CT angiogram? When do you get a CT ven venogram? You know, these are the questions that typically come up. So yes, you know, getting a CT head is, is not wrong, right? But patients going to scanner anyways, are you going to get a CTA? Are you going to get a CTV? So there are, um, you, there are certain mechanisms of injury and other injuries that are associated with arterial injury and also venous sinus thrombosis. So it's important to know about those. So a CTA is really warranted if you've got a penetrating mechanism of injury or an in, um, or certain fractures, diffuse axonal injury, or GCS six or below. 
Additionally, if you've got something focal that you're seeing on your neuro exam and your CT head that you got earlier really didn't have a reason for that, say, for example, you have left MCA syndrome, but you don't see any issue in that MCA territory, you better believe you you have to get a CTA. Look for large vessel occlusion, right? Set off that cascade of that stroke alert, getting the vascular neurologist involved or however you do it at your hospital, a code stroke what or, or whatever, because a large vessel occlusion or stroke could have led to the car accident that this patient is coming in with. So absolutely get a CTA in those, uh, in those uh, situations. And then also think about, you know, if somebody has a subarachnoid hemorrhage, is this a pat? Does this look like a traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage or does it look aneurysmal? That would be another indication for CTA. And finally, when do you get a CTV? So if you've got skull fracture spanning the venous sinus or jugular bulb, get a CTV. They're associated with venous sinus thrombosis, and that may be a de de delayed development. So, you know, reassess that as needed. Um, and finally, you know, we cannot forget about <clears throat> the C-spine, right? You've had some trauma to the head. <laughs> You've got to be thinking about C-spine. Um, you know, scan the cervical spine if you need to. Um, so when you're in doubt about who should get CT head, I like the modified Canadian CT head rule, where if they have any of these, you know, things listed out here, right, any of these, it leads to a CT head. I don't think it's wrong to get a CT head. So you've gotten your imaging, right? And perhaps you found a focal lesion, a focal hemorrhage or something like that. You know, the neurosurgeons are going to be the ones ultimately deciding the timing and necessity, urgency of an intervention, okay? But I think it's helpful to have a framework for my practice, okay? So what I've done here is created this table using a couple different resources that, you know, gives you a rough guideline of you know, patient that has a particular injury, when do they go to surgery? When do you need to be sounding the alarm bells, right? Because you want to have that framework yourself, okay? So I'm not going to go through all of them, but refer back to them and review them in your own time. So I really find it helpful to think about TBI management, which all boils down to preventing secondary injury. I like to think about the ABCs, right? They're a little bit different than the ABCDE that you use in your trauma evaluation. I've modified them a bit. There's airway, breathing, circulation, cerebral perfusion, and intracranial pressure. And if you keep these factors in mind, you will be helping to minimize secondary injury. So, um, in, in the brain injured patient, there's a cascade of injury that's set off by these primary injured neurons that then leads to neurotoxin release, swelling, that leads to increased intracranial pressures. And even, you know, separately from all that, you can just have dysfunction of normal cerebral autoregulation. And all of these things combine to create secondary injury. So by ensuring good oxygenation, ventilation, brain perfusion, and normal brain pressures, we can really try to optimize blood flow, because that's what this comes down to, and minimize secondary injuries. So the first order of business is securing the airway as needed, GCS 8 and below.
general guideline. There are really few exceptions to this. Remember that in brain injured patients, their mental status can get worse before it gets better. Be mindful of C-spine injury, right? Stabilize that C-spine if you're intubating. But intubation secures the airway, prevents issues with aspiration. It can allow you to then optimize your oxygenation and your CO2 targets, okay? Um, so with regards to arterial oxygenation, we know that hypoxemia leads to worse outcomes in these patients. Um, so in general, we say, you know, target a PAO2 of greater than 60. Be mindful that too high of, you know, oxygen levels is also bad and can lead to reaction, reactive oxygen species as well. Um, now, in terms of your carbon dioxide targets. So really optimization of this is really so critical given carbon dioxide effect on cerebral perfusion. So decreased uh, CO2 levels leads to lead to vasoconstriction, cerebral vasoconstriction, which leads to decreased cerebral perfusion, which can cause secondary injury. Also, increased uh, CO2 can lead to va cerebral vasodilation and increased intracranial pressures. So you really want that nice Goldilocks sort of range, PaCO2 of 35 to 45. Now, if your patients develop ICP issues, you're going to hyperventilate them in the short term while you're deciding a surgical treatment uh, versus something else, okay? And that is totally fine to do. You just don't want long-term uh, hyperventilation, okay? Um, now, Brain tissue oxygenation, I'm going to talk about that here because it really falls into like an oxygenation thing. In the acute setting, you most likely won't be managing or targeting a brain tissue oxygenation, okay? This is probably going to be something that happens after this patient goes off to the ICU, but I think it's an important concept to understand, right? So we know that the brain relies on supply of oxygen to maintain cellular metabolism and function, and loss of oxygen leads to neuronal cell death. Um, we know that low brain tissue oxygenation um, has been associated with worse outcomes in severe TBI patients. What is not clear is, hey, if we measure this and we try to adjust our therapies based on this, does this lead to improved outcomes? Now, there is some data that suggest improved mortality and outcomes with these targets, okay? Um, but there are still more studies to be done and coming down the pipe about this, okay? Um, so, you know, the other issue is with these there was brain tissue oxygenation targets is it requires intracranial monitoring. You may not have that everywhere, right? But let's say you do have it and you have it the, in the acute setting. You want your brain tissue oxygen target to be greater than 20 millimeters of mercury. That's your target. That's your goal. So let's move on to circulation, okay? C for circulation. Normal blood pressure preserves cerebral blood flow. If cerebral autoregulation is intact, it functions, right? As your blood pressure decreases, you have cerebral vasodilatation that maintains brain perfusion. That increases your cerebral blood volume, and that can increase your ICP. That can cause secondary injury. If your autoregulation is not intact, like is the case in many TBI patients, drops in blood pressure can lead to cerebral ischemia, which can cause secondary injury. So what we know about these TBI patients is that hypotension in the first 24 hours is an independent risk factor of a poor outcome. So you really want to target a good systolic goal, right? We also know from data that a systolic less than 85 versus a systolic of greater than 85 
led to mortality difference of 35 and 6% respectively, okay? So the Brain Tumor Foundation guidelines, which are based on some retrospective cohort data, they, they really say, you know, target a systolic blood pressure goal of greater than 110 for most patients, um, caveat being uh, for patients 50 to 69 years old, 50 to 69 years old, you want to target a systolic greater than or equal to 100. And that's all to improve, you know, mortality and prevent secondary injury. So when you're targeting these circulation goals, uh, in general, we say, you know, use isotonic fluids, normal saline's preferred, and I've listened to some studies here uh, that it's loosely based on, okay? Um, the other thing is, you know, we know that people have a higher mortality that have hypotension in the first 24 hours. So if you're not reaching those goals, you know, there's really a, should be a low threshold to initiate pressors, right? We don't know which pressor is best. We don't have that data. In my shop, we use Levofit. Let's get the systolic pressure up, okay? Perfuse the brain. It's very good. Um, so the other C's I've added in here are cerebral perfusion and intracranial pressure, right? What we've said all, all along here in the past couple slides is we want to preserve cerebral perfusion. Cerebral perfusion leads to, you know, adequate delivery of oxygen, nutrients, all that stuff. Lack of that leads to ischemia, okay? That's that's bad. Um, any sort of dysregulation in this can lead to ischemia, increased uh, pressures and things like that. So it's it's just so critical to maintain cerebral perfusion. But to really know what your cerebral perfusion is, right, you have to know what your intracranial pressure is because your cerebral perfusion is your mean arterial pressure minus your intracranial pressure, right? So to know what your intracranial pressure is, you need some sort of neuromonitor, right? An EVD, a bolt, something like that, right? Telling your telling you your ICPs. So the whole crux here is, does intracranial pressure monitoring improve mortality or outcomes in severe TBI? Well, you know, there was an RCT that did show no difference in patients' uh, mortality or outcomes that were monitored with intracranial monitoring versus just from exam and, and uh, imaging alone. But there are some meta-analyses that show, you know, uh, maybe there is a reduction in in-hospital mortality and two-week mortality. So in general, you know, and I would say it, the practice is to do intracranial monitoring in selected patients. And actually, the level 2B recommendation from the Brain Trauma Foundation um, is to do ICP monitoring, target ICP less than 22, and a cerebral perfusion pressure of 60 to 70. Okay, ICP values greater than 22 have been associated with worse outcomes in TBI patients, and CPP 60 to 70 has been associated with improved uh, survival and outcomes in these pa patients. Okay. Now, um, which ICP monitor? You know, I personally am I'm partial to an EVD, right? You can get your intracranial pressure and you can do CSF diversion. This becomes problematic when somebody has a lot of cerebral edema, if you've got slit-like ventricles, maybe then in that case, a, um, a bolt or, you know, an intraparenchymal monitor is more appropriate. 
Okay. Now, even if you're in a shop that doesn't do intracranial pressure monitoring and you have no way of, of getting that, um, you can look for exam clues of increased intracranial pressure, right? A declining neuro exam, uh, pupil asymmetry, posturing, and Cushing's triad, hypertension, bradycardia, irregular respirations, right? And you're going to want to empirically treat that, okay? Because it's obviously it's an emergency that's leading to secondary injury. That's what we're trying to prevent, okay? So, Hyperosmolar therapy, hyperventilate your patient, make sure they're upright, neck midline, all that good stuff, okay? And always think about, always ask the question, do I need to repeat a CT to see if there's been something that's changed that led to this new pressure issue? And usually the answer is yes. Uh, just quickly, you know, with regards to decompressive craniectomy as acute TBI management, there are a couple RCTs to be aware of, okay? So, um, DECRA uh, was a study done in severe TBI patients that looked at bifrontal craniectomy versus medical treatment if those patients' ICPs were greater than 20 for 15 minutes in refractory to first tear ICP treatments, okay? Um, now, that actually led to worse functional outcomes, okay? Then Rescue ICP was another RCT that came along where they looked at a hemicraniectomy versus... Oh, hemicraniectomy or bifrontal craniectomy as last tier therapy uh, for refractory ICP issues in patients, okay, um, versus, you know, just medical therapy. And what they actually found is that those patients did have lower mortality, but worse functional outcomes among survivors, okay? So I think the bottom line here is decompressive craniectomy is a life-saving measure to control ICP and prevent herniation in the event that ICP is not responsive to max medical treatment, right? It's life-saving, but it may lead to worse functional outcomes, So the final C, and it's a bonus C that I kept hidden from you guys, I'm just revealing now, is think about coagulopathy. Ask the family, is this patient on an antithrombotic, right? Um, your, any medication-induced coagulopathy should be emergently reversed in the presence of bleeding, okay, um, in intracranial bleeding. So I'm going to refer you to this great acute neurology survival guide by Dr. Albin. It's got some great reversal strategies and then a free resource through EMCRIT, great reversal uh, strategies as well. Also be mindful of your platelets, you know, in this acute setting, greater than 100,000 if there's act active bleeding, okay? Think about seizures. Seizures are common in TBI patients and they lead to secondary injury, okay? Here's some risk factors for that here. Um, prophylactic seizure medications in moderate to severe TBI patients, they seem to be warranted um, and may lower the rate of your post-traumatic seizures within that seven-day period. Now, phenytoin was classically used more and more. We're all using Keppra. Um, some of this is based on small retrospective uh, studies uh, that shows that Keppra led to better long-term outcomes, okay? Always in these patients, consider an EEG. It's probably not going to be relevant in the acute acute setting, but know that these patients can have non-convulsive seizures that may explain some of their exam findings and lead to secondary injury, so low threshold to get that EG. I'm not going to belabor these therapies with no proven benefit at the time of this talk, right? But, you know, in general, steroids contraindicated, nabotapine, we don't have evidence that that works in traumatic subarachnoid hemorrhage, TXA, 
doesn't seem to make a difference, magnesium, prophylactic hypothermia. You can review, the, review those on your own if you'd like. Um, other practice pearls I wanted to put together, this is really out of the acute setting, but important for those of us who work in the acute setting and also take care of these patients in the ICU, okay? Very importantly, avoid fever. Fevers lead to secondary injury. Be on the lookout for paroxysmal sympathetic hyperactivity. This can begin as early as day one after TBI and le can lead to secondary injury. And remember, that's what we're all about preventing. Consider starting propranolol. I'll let you look into that RCT and decide if that's right for you. But perhaps, you know, we need, we need more information, but, you know, it may be something you want to consider in your, your toolbox. Discuss DVT prophylaxis initiation in all patients. Of course, you know, compression devices in, right when they're admitted, right? Prevent DVTs. And discuss initiation of chemical DVT prophylaxis at that 24-hour window, 48-hour window, um, if you've demonstrated stability on your CT head imaging, okay? Um, don't forget to feed these patients. So in resource-limited settings, um, you know, I think the framework is really the same. Obviously, you're going to want to do what's best for that patient. And if you can, get them to a TBI center. I'd put your resources in figuring that out, right? But in general, while you're waiting for that, characterize the disease severity, right? That's, that's critically important to risk stratify these patients. And go back to your ABCs, right? Focus on your oxygenation targets, your CO2 targets, at the very least, blood pressure targets, secure, you know, secure their airway, reverse coagulopathies. You may not have intracranial pressure monitoring, but use that exam to guide your therapies. I wanted to provide here this checklist that I love from the Acute Neurology Survival Guide, again, uh, by Dr. Alpin. Um, it's great. If you're a checklist person like me, you would just want to go back to a checklist. Am I getting all those ABCs? Am I thinking about all the things? Just refer back to it. So finally, to recap, I think we've learned that TBI is a massive worldwide problem, but our goal in the acute setting is to prevent secondary injury, characterize TBI severity, and assess for surgical interventions in the emergent setting, right? Um, we prevent secondary injury by those ABCs, airway, breathing, oxygenation, circulation, cerebral perfusion, and intracranial pressure optimization, okay? Always come back to those. And better outcomes are had for people that are treated at TBI centers. Triage accordingly. Thank you very much, and feel free to email me with feedback, questions. I really look forward to hearing from you all. Erica, look, thank you very, very much, both for the wonderful talk, obviously, on the pocketbook of emergency medicine uh, and also your wonderful uh, five pearls of wisdom. Do you mind just before we let you go back to get your car fixed? Um, do you mind just I, I ask every guest the same question uh, and I'll ask the same of you if that's OK. So if I could bring you back on my time machine to meet your junior self just starting your career, what one piece of advice would you give them, given everything you've learned uh, so far in your career? So the piece of advice would be, it is so easy in those early training to, days to get bogged down in the things that you did wrong, the mistakes you made. Perhaps you 
uh, let down your upper level resident, your supervising doctor in some way, you know, usually small. And this feeling of not being good enough, the imposter syndrome. So rather than focus on all of those things, pick three good things that you did that day related to patient care or something surrounding. You know, were you able to provide an, a really comprehensive update to a patient's family member who was really struggling and felt lost? And maybe that made them feel better. Were you able to make some sort of diagnosis um, or think through a diagnosis and really learn something from it? That's, that's a win. That's a good thing. Were you able to have great communication with the nurse at the bedside that really helped a patient in some way? So rather than ruminating on all of the ways that there may have been a shortcoming, focus on three good things each day. And the best time I, I found to do this for myself is on that commute home, walking home, on the train, in the car, think about three good things. Erica, that's more wonderful advice. I think that's very important. God, we, we totally ruminate on the negatives, don't we? And we never think or, or give time or, or give enough of our energy to, to reward ourselves for some of the good stuff we've done each day. So I think that is wonderful advice. So listen, Erica, thank you so much um, for everything. And and yeah, we'll, we'll hopefully see you soon. We'll get you back soon, hopefully. Take care. It was a blast. Thank you for having me. So a huge thank you once again to Erica for her wonderful lecture and her pearls of wisdom. Remember, you can watch this lecture in its entirety at www.continuous.com forward slash LP forward slash St. Mungo's. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>